it was always like the next thing will fix this and I'll be better. Right. And everything will be fine. So like getting married, everything will be better. And we did get married and, um, it, it, it wasn't better. I really believe I'm like a walking miracle. Welcome to From the Inside Out. I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. We're mums, wives, entrepreneurs, and friends on a mission to change the world for the better, one conversation at a time. Through interviews with world-renowned thinkers, leaders, and our everyday heroes, we bring you wisdom, insight, and practical tools that can change your life for the better. We believe that every experience provides us with an opportunity for learning. Our job is to be patient with the process of growth and trust that our journey will lead us to where we're meant to be. Words can inspire us, but it's only once we channel that inspiration into action that we begin to experience the positive change we want to see in the world. We hope this platform will inspire you to create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. Thank you for being here and let the conversation begin. Today's episode is sponsored by Tavido. Tavido is a website and app that has hundreds of original and quality videos for Jewish boys and girls. It's designed to be a safer and simpler place for Jewish kids' entertainment so that you can literally hand it to your child and be comforted knowing that there are no ads, that on YouTube, there are many kids' videos that you don't approve of. And with Tavido, you don't have to worry about that. What's different about Tavido is that new videos are added weekly and content is produced solely for the subscribers. And we're talking 3D animation, live action film, and so much more. And now that it's Hanukkah, there happens to be a live action movie about Maccabees in the year 2022. Tavido makes a great Hanukkah gift. It does, and a great all year round gift too. And it's only $99 a year, which if you break it down is only about $8 a month. And if you are a From the Inside Out podcast listener, you get a special discount of 15% off on tavito.com and the discount code is inside out all caps lock it's available on almost every platform smart tv website and on apps and it's also available for download so that you can use it while traveling so if you would like to get the special discount sign up today at tavito.com t o v e e d o.com thank you tavito for partnering with us in this very special episode if you would like to sponsor an upcoming episode, and we have some fantastic ones coming your way, please email rifkaandida at gmail.com. As always, I feel like whenever we release our episodes, the time is right. And especially in light of the light of Hanukkah, very grateful to have had this very important, inspiring conversation with Bashi Nepastek. Her story is about an important story about mental health, how we can all thrive, and remember that through our deepest challenges, light can emerge if we believe it and if we put in the effort. I believe this episode is for everyone. Everybody is affected by mental health. And if it's not you, it's, it can be a sibling, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a teacher. It could be the person driving next to you. It could really be anyone. One in five people with a diagnosable mental health condition. So this affects us all. I think it's very important to understand how hard it is to see when someone else is hurting and what we can do to help each other. Yes. And, you know, um, the miracle of Hanukkah was above nature. And um, I, the miracle that 
we can experience today is that within our nature, we go beyond ourselves. And I think that Bashi represents that going beyond herself and the ripple effect that that has, because she has gone on not only to create light within herself, but now she also spreads that light to others. And that is the miracle of Hanukkah, going beyond ourselves. And that goes beyond us and beyond our nature, pushing past that and um, then spreading that light out into the world. One last thing I want to share before we go into this episode is that our minds are powerful and we're really good at time traveling. You know, we could travel, we could time travel to the past and stay stuck in it. We can even visualize a beautiful future and, and really close our eyes and imagine something that didn't even yet happen. The past can be helpful in helping you understand how you got here and what are the patterns that you don't want to continue. The future is beautiful and that you can look forward to beautiful and great things and create goals for yourself. But the present is really everything we have. And it's when you're aware that you're not being present, by definition, you're already more present because you have that awareness. So just remember that even if you're not feeling fully present, just that awareness um, means you're on the right path. Think about that. And you listen to this episode that I think, I mean, I feel that one of the biggest steps in this process of healing, growth, light is being aware of where you are and what you need. And know that there's a lot more people who understand you than you might think. And let's all go in with this in mind as well. To the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. We would love for you to share with us your mental health journey and walk us through that experience and how it brought you here to where you are today. For sure. When I was in elementary and growing up, I I grew up with a twin sister. I come from a family of seven. I don't remember having challenges, any mental health struggles until about eighth grade. So probably when I hit puberty and then like, you know, emotions and hormones, things that I didn't know about and and wasn't hearing about. Um, And my inside started uh, feeling very different than usual. I was going through school. I had friends. I was doing well in school too. I liked studying and learning. Um, But little by little, day by day, my emotional, my insides were very, very rocky. And I started experiencing depression. I started experiencing a lot of social anxiety, especially in school or when there would be events for girls. Um, programs. And I, it was undiagnosed. So I didn't know these words until much later, but I did know that I wasn't having an easy time and I didn't seem to just get through my day like everybody else. Everybody else seemed to know how to get through it and they weren't struggling. And here I was, you know, a program would come up and the only thing I would want to do is stay home and not go. Um, But I would go. And then after quite a while. I just wanted to go back home. Um, I just wanted to crawl into a small space and, and just be there alone because my thoughts were coming and, and were so powerful and my feelings. So basically I I was living with a lot of challenges without knowing how to handle them and without even knowing what they were. And that was, did you have any, did you have any support? Did you share that with anybody? No, 
I didn't even know like what words to use or how to open up a conversation, um, especially because it wasn't being spoken about. I felt like there was something wrong with me. I was doing something wrong. I just couldn't get it right. I didn't, I couldn't be like the other girls who just seemed wake up and go to school and have friends and get through their day without struggling. With someone else who was watching you, would they have felt that you had it together? Like you, it sounds like you kept it together on the surface. Yeah. 100%. Okay. 100%. You know, like now, you know, after pre COVID post COVID, I guess it depends which place you're living in, but, um, you know, like people put on masks and I, I was wearing a mask for many, many years without people really seeing what was going on inside me. When I began sharing my story as an adult, I even had teachers or classmates come up to me, you know, like we never knew you were going through something, you know, we wish we, we would have known because we could have been there for you, but then there was no way I was going to share with anyone. They were like my dark secrets, this reality that was going on inside myself that I just hid from everybody on the outside. Um, my best friend was my journal. I discovered, you know, writing probably in ninth grade, even in eighth. And I would just, when I was feeling, you know, strong feelings, I would just go and and write them out and write them out. And I was constantly trying to like fix myself because I was so self-aware of what was going on inside. When I would write, I was, I was trying to like solve the problem so I can be better and move on, which never worked. Um, and, and I, and of course I didn't share my journal with anyone. So after I would write sometimes for, you know, an hour or two and just cry and write, I wouldn't feel any better. If anything, I would feel worse. I would feel more alone. I would feel more isolated and missing and, you know, not understood by anyone. Wait, did you ever feel like you were able to share with a doctor that you would go to or? Well, she didn't. You know, it sounds like you didn't know what you did. even would have had to share because no one was talking about it. Exactly. And I hadn't expressed to anyone that something was going on inside me. So on the outside, everything was, you know, fine. And, were, you given, um, was, were, you, were you given like a diagnosis of what you have? I wasn't given a diagnosis until seminary when I had my first like full-blown anxiety attack. But so then I heard the word anxiety and I, and I got introduced to medication, but even depression or bipolar, which I was diagnosed many years later was not in my dictionary. I, you know, but when I did hear the words years later, I looked back and thought, Oh, that was what that was. Or that was that time, you know, when I couldn't get out of it. So, but that was only years later. In high school, I didn't hear that at all. So what did you think? You just thought? Again, I just thought, you know, like I'm I'm different than everyone else. I can't seem to get it right. I can't figure this out. It was always like me trying to fix myself and I couldn't. Um, what did your parents tell you? My parents also, I, I, you know, I didn't share with them until years later, again, in seminary when my mom, you know, had to intervene. And, and in ninth grade, I became anorexic. And, you know, in hindsight, uh, it was a way of taking control of my life. Um, and also like, you know, from what I've learned now, I'm in like a psychoeducation program. It's, it's also that anorexia stems from anxiety and depression most of the time. So, and even when I came home anorexic after a summer away and my mom intervened because she saw I was starving myself and I was, I was like, uh, like just bones and, 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 um, even when she intervened and I did go to an eating disorder doctor, the root of where that was coming from was not addressed. So I got back to eating properly, but um, I still didn't hear the word depression or anxiety until years later. 
Wow. Yeah. So then there was eventually physical manifestation of something mental that you didn't understand. It sounds like that's when your mom noticed something was different and intervened. Yes. If I look back, like my mom was that caring and obviously my father too, that those and my family, you know, everyone, but, but, but my first incident, you know, with anorexia and with um, um, the anxiety, it was my mom like was always, always by my side, you know, not giving up on me, trying to find, a, you know, like she's given me that value that, you know, never to give up. Like there's always help. There's always, you know, a resource. Um, so definitely, you know, she was like that rock for me through those years. And again, it was only when she actually knew something was going on or it manifested itself outwardly. So then, you know, then it had to be addressed. Addressed. Yeah. But it was definitely years and years of anxiety, years of depression. I remember like during recess, because I had so much social um, anxiousness, I would go to the back stairwell, like where people weren't going during recess. And I would have a journal or I would just cry and be very alone. Um, And again, I didn't want anybody to see me in that state. Right. So afterwards, I would just dry my tears and go back to class and pretend nothing happened. Um. Yeah. So it was, it was very lonely for many, many years. And again, you know, like, even though I was growing up with a twin sister who was very sociable and lots of fun and we were very close. Um, I, I also hid it from her, you know, many times. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, now I know that twins are connected and she, you know, she always knew I was struggling and wanted to be there for me. Um, but it, identical it was, twins or no fraternal. Oh, Yeah. But uh, it's it's funny because all through our years, like people would like slap me on my shoulder and say to her, hey, did you feel that? You know, because, you know, they say, right. but, yeah. but but when I did become open about my story and I shared about my anxiety attack during seminary, my twin actually told me she was the only one who realized when I closed back up again. And I can share that as well. So, um, so well, I graduated from high school with all these right issues door, like not dormant. They were very much, they were storming inside of me, but again, people didn't realize what was going on. And, um, I made it to seminary and the first year of seminary, my twin went actually flew to Australia. Oh, nice. Yeah. So she went there for seminary with a few friends. I stayed in Montreal and I was definitely experiencing a very deep depression at the beginning of the year. Um, I had two friends that were holding, you know, were by me holding my hand, but again, nobody said it was depression. Nobody, you know, it was just like, I couldn't stop crying all the time. And and I think you had a reason, like, was it because, did you think maybe it was because your sister left and went to Australia or you knew there was something more than that? So then I thought, you know, that was the reason, right? Like I was depressed that I didn't go with her, but you know, again, you know, hindsight is 2020. Like when I look back, it was definitely depression, you know, like not being able to stop crying and constantly feeling down. Um, now, you know, I've learned, you know, feelings are like the weather. So kind of like clouds. So when I think of depression, it's kind of just like this cloud that's just sitting and it's not moving anywhere. Right. There's like no sunshine, not even um, a, like a glimpse of any way of seeing sunshine. Right. The um, question is, if you, sorry, to inter- I was just as curious, uh-huh. like if you went to Australia, do you think that it would have been different to you or this was going to, you feel like you would have been depressed no matter what? Yeah. I think if anything, it would have like exacerbated um, the issues already, you know, right, because right. they weren't being taken care of. And I, I, it would, it would have probably been too much for me and God knew that. And I guess some, somewhere deep inside, I knew that that's why I didn't 
yeah with them not not um, I'm just asking that particular like there's probably many scenarios even when you were younger it could was it because you didn't have friends or was it because or did you not did you feel lonely not because you didn't have friends but because you were just simply in it in a depression yeah I think I think it's the second like like I was because I did have friends I did have girls that you know wanted to be friends with me sometimes I couldn't reciprocate with the friendship because I was, you know, so upset with myself or I was so, um, I, I felt so disturbed inside that I couldn't connect with anyone. But despite all that, um, through the years, you know, I did, I, you know, I did have friendships, even though I always felt alone and isolated. And also what helped was that my twin sister was very sociable. So I kind of joined her group of friends. Um, you know, I kind of like I grew up in her shadow, which helped me. Um, you know, like I, I look at it as a gift that, you know, and and obviously, you know, I love her and she's a support in my life and and it helped me. It helped me get through all those years. I just wanted to acknowledge something that you said earlier about how, you know, you felt like everyone had it together and that something was wrong with you. And one thing I hear so much, unfortunately, a lot from teens is um, everyone else has it together but me. And when someone is struggling, if you're struggling on the inside um, and you feel like everyone else has it together, chances are that if you ask someone else, they would probably think the same thing about you. I just wanted to add to that, that all my years, I was constantly comparing myself to others, to my twin sister, and it really, really was harmful. It, it didn't help me, you know, accept myself and love myself. But something that I heard which really spoke to me was that when I'm comparing myself to others, I'm comparing my inside to their outsides because people, when they walk around, they show their outsides, they show their strengths, they show their, you know, whatever's going for them. They're not hanging out, you know, whatever's actually going on inside, but I know my, my deep secrets. And then I'm comparing that. And so I just wanted to share that because that's helped. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Yeah. And I would have loved to hear that as a, you know, as a teenager. Um, so that's what our walked- podcast is all about from the inside out. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I, I, I got through the year and I actually did really well that year because it was kind of like this identity crisis at the very beginning. I was always with my twin sister it was the first year that she like went away. And, um, here I was like, somebody would laugh at something I said. And when I was growing up with her, it was very black and white, like, right? Everything was like opposite. So she was funny. I was serious. She loved to socialize. I didn't, it was very black and white for me. And here people were like laughing at something I said, and I would literally turn and see if she was there. So it was like this whole new discovery, like, Hey, I actually am funny, or I actually have certain talents that I hadn't, I hadn't had the opportunity to explore. So I had an amazing year. I made really good friends to this day. Um, and that was a really amazing year. And I was on such a high that I even applied to be a head counselor in Florida. My sister was going to, my twin was going to come with me when she got back and, and, you know, life was, life was, you know, finally going upwards and getting easier. And as the year started coming to an end, I started experiencing these feelings all over again. And I felt my insides again, you know, being like all that conflict and, and, this time I was able to say to my mom, like something's going on. I'm, you know, I don't know what words I used. I can't remember, but she did get me a therapist for the first time, a psychologist. And I went to her and I was trying to describe to her how powerful my thoughts were and how I'm getting back into this funk. And 
she kind of described me as a jack in the box that when my sister was away, I jumped out and when she was going to come back and she was spot on, I just automatically was going back into my shell. And um, even though like I had the wisdom that she was trying to provide and the tools, I remember when I was in the airport waiting by the terminal, the moment my twin came out, the moment I saw her, my insides shut down, everything shut down all over again. And, and years later, she said she felt it. Like she saw that happening, which I didn't know at that time. I thought I was the only one who um, was able to, to feel it. Um, That's so special that you're able to share that with each other. Yes. And hear each other. Yeah. And again, she's been a gift in my life. You know, I, I couldn't have gone through any of this without her. Um, and here I was again, like, you know, quiet in a shell, not sharing again, very low self-esteem, low self-confidence, just back to where I was. And it was even more difficult at this point because, and I sank into, into, into a deeper depression because I knew, because I couldn't understand what was happening to me. Like I was this very lively, fun seminary girl who was supposed to go be a head counselor. And here I was again, you know, like back to where I was. Um, I actually describe it as like being in a pit, you know, and, and I felt like I'd gotten out and here I was not only back in the pit, but even lower, like, um, and, but life went on. I continued planning the schedule. And even though my anxiety was mounting and my depression was getting worse and worse, I flew to Florida. I was supposed to perform as a head counselor. I was in a very, very deep depression, probably the, 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 the strongest depression I'd ever been in. Um, and I couldn't. Amazing that you got to Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow I got on the plane and went. And as the days continued, um, it got worse and worse. And at one point, like I was talking so low, I couldn't be a head counselor. My twin would step in another counselor. I would come home from camp and just go into bed and cry or just lay there for, you know. And again, I didn't hear the word depression. It didn't come up for, you know, somehow. And and I got through that month, not functional at all, though. And, and with them stepping in pretty much for everything. Um, and then the next month I was supposed to fly to fly to England to be a counselor with a friend that I had made in seminary. And I did somehow I got back to Montreal somehow in a deep depression with, with, you know, my anxiety through the roof. I flew to England on my own. I got to my friend's house and I was clearly not the same person that she had, you know, been with the first year of seminary. And I think a lot of my anxiety was actually because of the fact that I couldn't be the person she knew. And I didn't know how to change that. Again, I didn't know how to fix myself and how to get me out of this funk so I can be, you know, be that fun bashi that she knew the first year. So I I actually stayed by her house. And again, I got into deeper and deeper depression. Um, I was still going to camp every day, and but I was hardly speaking at that point because I was I was starting to experience like a big, big, big anxiety attack after, you know, a huge buildup. And it was like slowly er- erupting. Were you but able to still, share that with her? No, it was all inside me. I, I like, I wasn't taking care of myself properly. I was hardly speaking. And after quite a few weeks, her mother picked up the phone and called my mom and said, there's something up with your daughter. Like she needs you. You need to come out here. Wow. And this was the first time, um, again, my mom had been there for me when I was anorexic, but here, like she flew out to England, made a expedited passport and my mom's like her mom's from England. So she tried to take me on, you know, tours or it was her first time in England too. 
And I was like dead inside, dead outside, like just unresponsive. Um, and she flew me back to Montreal and it didn't get any better. I would just binge watch. I would just eat and do nothing, nothing else. I couldn't, I couldn't socialize with anyone. I couldn't get myself to go to seminary. Um, I did try the first year of the first day of seminary because I had, I was going to repeat, I was going to do the second year and a lot of my friends were coming back. I was so anxious that if I walked in there, I wasn't the same person they knew um, that I went, I went to seminary the first day, but I went in from the back, back steps. And I remember looking through the window and seeing all my friends there. And I thought, I can't walk in here. And I went back home and then I was home for quite a few months. Um, I want to say this, that even when I was like in the deepest depression or going through my anxiety or whatever I was going through mentally or emotionally, I never forgot the people who reached out and even the people who didn't know what to do. Like I remember a teacher sent me a Danish she had taught me the first year and she like wrote just a letter. We miss you. And even though I wasn't talking, I wasn't functional. I will never forget that act that she did. And in all my years, like any challenge that I've been through or when I went through my manic episodes, I never forgot who was there for me, you know, even when I wasn't all there. So I did want to say that because I feel like it's an important because I do find that sometimes people don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. And even if not knowing what to do, but just saying, you know, like I'm, I'm concerned about you or I miss you or, you know, I wish I could be there for you. Like it does make a difference. I so appreciate that you, that you just said that. And I actually had chills when you were sharing it about the Danish because mental illness affects everybody, whether it's a family member or a relative. I mean, the statistics speak for themselves. And I think a lot of people, let's say even family, I would say, especially family members to feel helpless. And I think teachers, especially, I would say, because they spend more time with kids than even parents do it, a Danish and a little note you still remember today. Yeah. And I, I believe anyone could do that. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. For sure. And I, and I also want to add, you know, that behind that illness, it's a person inside, you know, like sometimes like when I'm also, you know, emotional when I'm sharing this, but like, even when I was in certain states where I wasn't coherent or maybe I was hurting people with words or whatever my behavior was on the outside like it's still a human being inside you know and I was still touched by the acts of kindness that people would do even if they didn't know how to be there for me something about like that your mother flew to London and how you share how she loves you and she wanted to be there for you and she'd do anything I think that's very touching at the same time I also wonder like you just share like all these little acts mean so much to you what is it that you think would have really done it for you that wouldn't have made the journey so long, you know, till what do you think that your mother who loves you so much could have done or your sister could have done um, like the little acts. And that's so important to know all these little things that you always remember them and how much they touch you, but it wasn't what you really, really needed to, to pull yeah. you out. What do you think it was so, that would have made a difference. So it's a really good question. Um, and I, I, honestly, I don't live my life with what ifs because it would be too painful, you know, to think like, oh, my life could have been so different if. So well, I'll, tell, think, I'll tell you why I'm asking it, because for all those who are are struggling and for people who have family members or friends that are going through it, what is it that we can do? Yeah, right. maybe the question is now if if there's someone 
Yeah. yeah so like knowing like what you went through, what is it yeah. that not, not asking for you to go back and be like, I wish this is what would have happened because this is part right. of your journey, but to help others who for are going sure, through it. Sure. No, I understand the question for sure. Yeah. And I want to say that like, whatever my mom did do and my sister and my family and teachers and friends was exactly the best they could do with what they knew. Right. But if I was going through what I went through now in this day and age, I do believe that there could have been much earlier interventions, you know, because first of all, mental health is slowly being destigmatized. I mean, what we're doing right now, sitting here, like the fact that, you know, I can go on a podcast and hear someone sharing their struggles and, and realizing like, well, I'm not alone. That would have made a huge difference for me. So initially when I started sharing my story, the message was you're not alone. And that was really important because if I would have heard those words as a teenager, you know, it would have helped so much with the isolation and the loneliness. And when I started getting real support, like in real support groups with people who were struggling, I realized how detrimental the isolation is. And sometimes, not sometimes, this isolation and the loneliness is what kills a person even more than the mental illness itself or the struggle, because not having someone to share with, not knowing that there are others that have been down that path in their own way that have, that have gotten support and gotten well, you know, is, is very, very despairing, you know, and, and it's again, that pit, but like with hopelessness and I'll never get better. So I really believe that any teenagers who are struggling nowadays, there are so many resources. There's so much help. There are podcasts. There's, you know, your what you're doing, your platform, and th- it's more spoken about. And that's, you know, like them knowing they're not alone, and there's a lot of help. Whether it's um, support groups, psychiatry, whatever, whatever help is needed. You know, a therapist, and also being proactive, like awareness um, to introduce it because. Like you said, you know, you didn't know at the time when you're now there's more out there, but still there might still be kids who don't have the exposure. Um, so just to introduce it in schools, to have someone come out and talk about anxiety and depression as it's the, in the same way that you talk about having a stomach ache or a headache. And, you know, my way of giving back is that I teach in high school, I teach in seminary, and I'm very open about my mental health challenges and not to put it on the, them, but just for them to hear like the word anxiety, the word and and just knowing that there's you know, like a teacher can show up with a wig, with the, with the lipstick, but like, you know, they're real, the struggles are real. And, and also being that example of, you know, there is hope. That's what I want to come out of this podcast too. Not only that you're not alone, but more so than that, you're a teacher now teaching, you're, you're teaching students that if you end up being diagnosed with mental illness or you're feeling unusual um, that something like something's wrong, there is hope to have a great life, which I wanted you to continue sto- your story so that yeah. you can share with us this, this inspiration. For sure. So, um, okay. So I'm coming back from England. I'm I'm not functional, not talking, not doing anything really. And my mom, but again, I didn't remember, you know, every doctor she tried to take me to, my mom was like a naturalist and very holistic approaches. So she tried to bring me to different alternative um, doctors or practitioners so that um, I wouldn't have to go the route of taking medication. But eventually, like, I ended up in a psychiatrist's office. And um, when I went to the psychiatrist's office, there was a Jewish couple there. And 
like a from couple in the doctor's office. And I think for me, that was the first time that Hashem was put someone there at the right time to let me know you're not alone. Like from people go through this. And at that, and up until that point, I was convinced that I was the only from girl that had ever, ever, ever suffered, you know, with any of these challenges. So I, I was put on antidepressants, even though I didn't want to take them, but they did work and they helped me. And I got through that year of seminary. I had a great year on antidepressants, hiding it from everyone, though. I didn't pop my pills in in front of anyone. Um, I flew to Israel for birthright, came back, graduated, started teaching in, in Beth Rifka, Montreal, in my alma mater. And I was always on medication then, you know, without anyone knowing. Um, and then I met my husband. Um, and we started dating and I was weaning off medication then, like my doctor was slowly weaning me off and he was giving me different strategies and tools. I can share one. I'm sure it can help your listeners. One of them was, yeah, he told, he was a great psychiatrist. Some, some psychiatrists are like pharmaceutical. They just want to give medication, you know, and up the meds and lower them. He wanted me to be able to function as a human being, you know, without relying on them. So, and and that's quite rare, isn't it? It's not often you find. Yeah. I'm just asking you, is that. 100%. And he actually, he was very old. Like he's since, I'm sure he's passed since, but he was like literally like an angel in my life then. And um, he taught me that, first of all, he he asked me to think of someone in my life that I look up to. And for me, that was my great aunt who actually now is turning 107 or eight this year. Wow. He's going strong and she's such an inspiration for me. So 120 plus. Yes. I mean. And and I can I can actually share an incident with her that when I was a teenager and I wasn't sharing with anyone and I was in bed, she came to visit and she marched up to my room and she said, She's like, get out of bed. She didn't, you know, I and she brought me to the mirror and she said to me, Look at that face. She's like, look at that face and tell that girl that you're so beautiful. And I don't know, she just I don't remember exactly what she said, but it was it was very, very impactful, you know, to this day. And so that's who I thought of when he said, think of an influential person in your life. And then he told me to kind of like, anytime I feel like I don't know what to do, or I don't know what's my next step, think of her and think, what would she do? And it really helped me. There were times when I would feel very lonely and I think, what would Auntie Mary do? And she would pick up the phone and call someone. And it gave me strength to pick up the phone and call someone. So that was, yeah, it was, it was, I love that. That is very, very helpful. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And um, that's such a good tool. And uh, I think also like, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a mother or a father or brother and sister. It's your great aunt yeah, that had yeah. such an influence on you and the power of words that she took you to the mirror and, and how an impact that had on you. I think that's such a good tool for anything. Yeah. And it's, um, I was dating my husband and I'm hiding medication from everyone, but I'm thinking I can't hide that I, take medication from someone I'm going to marry. So I kind of broke all the rules without asking a rub, which is really, <laughs> really the right way to do it. Um, and I just said to him, I need to discuss something with you. We stopped at the side of the road. I knew it was getting serious. And I told One second, him, can we pause? Did you already, you knew you really liked him and this yeah, is the person you want to yeah, marry? Yeah, I was smart. I waited until like, I knew he was falling for me and right. it was getting serious. <laughs> but he wasn't expecting what smart. I was going to share. <laughs> and like, without any, asking anyone permission, I just said to him, look, this is what I've been through and I'm still on medication. I'm weaning off. Anyway, his response was, you know, like 
acceptance and, and, you know, you are who you are today because of what you've been through. And, you know, it sounds nice and happily ever after, but when we got back home and he shared what I had said, you know, it kind of exploded a bit. Um, the shot was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't know about this. And it, it was like paused for a, for a few days. Um, and it was nerve wracking, but I had a really good friend with me and she said, look, Bashi, like if he accepts you, he knows what he's getting himself into and he'll love you for who you are. And um, how did you put your parents feel about the fact that you told him? So my mother at first, because the Khan called her, you know, so she said to me, how did you do this? I said, Ma, you raised me like as a really honest person. I cannot hide. And she was like, you're right. You know, that she she definitely uh, understood where I'd been coming yeah. from. How old but- were you? When you, when you did so this? So I was, I had just turned 20. That's really mature of you. That's amazing. That takes a lot of courage because I feel yeah. like a lot of people would not have been able to do that, to be honest, especially after so many years of keeping it inside. Right. To have this knowledge, like the, if this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, I can't hide it from this person. And I think that's very courageous of you to share. Yeah. It. And I guess Hashem gave me the courage at that moment. I don't know how I had it, um, right. but it was definitely also my father was very, very, very strong about honesty. And, you know, so it was it was one of the values that I was given as a child and as an adult. Um, and so we did we got engaged. And I want to add this, that in my life, it was always like the next thing will fix this and I'll be better. Right. And everything will be fine. So like getting married, everything will be better. And we did get married and um, it, it it wasn't better, um, but but I went back to what I knew best, hiding it. Like I didn't share with my husband when I would feel down or I didn't share, right? Like I just kind of let him get to know this, the me on the outside that I had done for so many years without letting him really into my, you know, real insides and my real struggles. Um and we had, thank God, like three children, one after the other. We were living in Florida on Shlichus. I was dealing with my emotional issues again on my own in a lonely way. Um, and 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 I didn't share with him because I, I was afraid of rejection, right? I was afraid of like, if he knew the real me, he'd run. Um, and he was also dealing with his own difficulties. Um, so we were kind of like trying to do the right thing, you know, being that couple on shlichus and thank God having children and being able to, we opened a friendship circle and we did the best we could with what we were struggling with. Um, and, and then before we knew it, we were back in Montreal, we moved back to my hometown and, um, it was just all too much being on shlichus for you. And, uh, it was more like we were ready to move on and, um, financially, you know, we were supposed to be supporting ourselves and my husband, you know, realized he's not the fundraiser that, you know, that, that they were expecting him to be. So, you know, all things considered, we moved back to Montreal. Um, and I was pregnant with my fourth when my husband shared with me that he was struggling with an addiction. And I, 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 I share it because he's open about it. Um, he's been interviewed as well. And, um, I didn't realize what addiction really meant. So I kind of thought like, if he shares this with me, then it's, He's not going to do it anymore, right? He's done. And then six weeks after my fourth child was born, so we had four children under the age of four, just to give context, what we were living with. And also I was always living under this like pretense of perfectionism, denial, very strong denial. Um, Like if I don't, if I don't um, admit 
that anything is difficult or wrong, then it's not. Um, and if I can keep up this, you know, this picture of like perfect, perfect girl, perfect shlucha, perfect mom, you know, with my kids dressed perfectly and everything on the outside makes sense, then then it'll be okay. The insides don't, right? Um, the insides will be fine eventually after this baby, after that baby, and they didn't get any better. So fast forward six weeks postpartum with my fourth child, my husband again disclosed to me, but this time like he had reached rock bottom and my whole life fell apart. I didn't know how to deal with what he was telling me. I hadn't heard the word addiction in seminary or high school. I wasn't and, prepared. And for you that. were going through your own postpartum depression. And I, and I was going through um, my first, I had gone through postpartum for sure. My first daughter. And then here I was after my fourth and it was besides for postpartum, it was also, um, like I, I, it, I ended up unraveling because we joined the 12 steps, but secretly underground, not letting anybody know. I tried to protect him, you know, so I wouldn't divulge his you know, his addiction to anyone. I had a lot of family members living in town. We didn't say anything. And we joined the 12 steps. We went to therapy together. We went to group therapies. It was very, very intense to say the least. And I was also constantly, constantly pretending to everyone. That everything's even fine. So it got to the point where I felt myself unraveling inside. And my biggest fear was that I would lose control. My biggest fear was that I I wouldn't be able to keep it together. But like you said, you're fat. You you didn't share anything with your family. When you talk to your siblings now or your um your friends, did they say we we could tell something was going on? A good question. Um, I think family. And and obviously, you know, now that I share years later, you know, that because they care so much about me and they're so supportive, you know, they wish they could have been there for me. Um, if I would have been more open then friends, for sure, the same, you know, friends say that as well. You know, they wish they could have been there for me. Teachers. Um, yeah. But like, you know, now that I've been open about it, you know, they can it, it's now that I'm open about it. It's it's like that biggest fear that I had never came true because, you know, like fear, they say, is false evidence appearing real yeah. or future events already ruined. Mm-hmm. so here and here it was that like you know people embraced me and they loved me so even when they heard what I had been through and that was very healing for me because I lived with that fear for many many years um so um I was slowly unraveling I was slowly you know I couldn't keep it together and as like the Aceous Kyle or you know trying to make it right I I couldn't fall apart because then my whole family will fall apart right like I'm the foundation of the home I took it very seriously <laughs> But here I was, I, I, um, I, I experienced my first manic episode. So it was, um, postpartum for sure, but it was also like undiagnosed bipolar disorder. And I ended up in the hospital, like make a long story short. It was obviously very, very dramatic. And just to describe a manic episode, I don't know if people know it's, it's like, you're seeing me now calm and, you know, and I wasn't like that during a manic episode. So I'm very impulsive. I'm screaming. I'm cursing. I'm shouting. I'm 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 like just doing anything that I think needs to be done. Spending money more than you know, like very very impulsive. Um, 
And it's very scary, actually, you know, for the fact for me as a as a person going through it and for my family as well, because they don't know how to help me or what's going to be the next blow or what's going to happen next. So it was very traumatic. I ended up in the hospital. I remember going in and it was summer and I came out, it was fall. So I was there for quite a long time. And even that experience was extremely traumatic. Um, I tried to escape once to go see my kids and I got into more trouble and I was in this, the locked ward then. So it was, it's literally like prison. You can't see out the windows. You can't lock the bathroom, everything you need permission for. So I came out, um, very, very, very broken, very, very, very lonely and shaken up. And I went right back into that mode of pretending because that's all I knew what to do. Right. So I went back and brought my kids to school and pretended I went away on vacation when I'd been in a psych ward, (laughs) but I didn't tell anyone. So your family didn't, nobody knew. My family did at that point, like when that happened, my manic episode, everything, you know, erupted and, and, and my family knew and, um, and his family, and they were extremely supportive and they held our hands and, and, and no matter like all through, you know, what we've been through and what I've been through, they've always been there for us. I can't um, imagine what that was like for you, um, locked up without any windows for months. What happened was, to that psychiatrist that you liked so much, the old so, man? So I actually went back to him after that incident. He was available. They they gave me the choice. And he he put he put me on on I was on uh like an antipsychotic and mood stabilizer. And he actually weaned me off after a few years, but very slowly. Um and I wanted to be like everyone else, I wanted to be able to have kids and just, you know, pop them out every year or every second year. I wanted to um, like be like everyone else, again, comparing myself and my insides to their outsides. So when I came out of the psych ward, I I said to Hashem, like, you have to help me here. And I, and I, I, it's a long story. I, I feel like, you know, there's so much to say, but I, I honestly believe that I discovered Hashem in the psych ward, even though I was brought up from he was very like punishing and out to get me until I ended up in a situation where I tried to escape. I couldn't get out. My family couldn't get me out. I was like, God, you got to get me out of here. And then he did. And I got mad at him. And I was like talking, you know, talking to him directly. So when I came out, I, and I would drop my kids off. I come home and fall apart. And I'm like, Hashem, you have to help me. Like I need support. I don't know what to do. I can't do this alone. And sure enough, I found a 12 step support group, Emotions Anonymous. And it was like, finally for me, like not because my husband was the qualifier, it was my own challenges that I needed to address and work through. And I was, I was in the 12 steps. I had a sponsor. I started working the steps It changed my life, like literally gave me like a new lease on life. And fast forward four or five years later, my husband and I had been to therapy and worked through the trauma we had been through. And thank God I was able to be blessed with three more children again, one after the other, um, (laughs) without learning my lesson. No, but thank God, really real brachais in our life. And I was working with my psychologist. She said, you know, Bashi, we don't know if you'll have a manic episode. And like, I felt like we were prepared for each birth. And I also wanted to prove to the doctors in the hospital and to myself that having been diagnosed with bipolar depression, anxiety, like I could still have more children, even though they told me not to, and I could still lead a productive life. I didn't want it to define me. So I had those three children and by child number seven, 
This was two years ago. About two years ago, my mom was diagnosed with a very quick illness that took her six months later. She was full of life. It was very, very shocking and and really, really difficult for us. What, what, what was she diagnosed with? With pancreatic cancer. Wow. Like Lele knew. And um, it took, she, it was like five months and she was gone. And I, so and I, sorry. and I had a, yeah, you know, me too. Like sometimes I tell God, you know, if I was running the show, I'd be doing things differently. Yeah. But, you know, he hasn't given me full reign yet, <laughs> but, but we definitely miss her. She was, you know, like a rock and in, in our life, um, really, really big inspiration. And, um, you know, now I live my life. I try to live up to her and to, you know, make her proud. And with baby number seven, three months old, I, I, again, I was start to unravel. And I remember saying, I don't want to end up in the psych ward during my mother's Shiva. That's what I was saying. And I did it's by the seventh day, you know, I was slowly like slipping into also psychosis mode. And I was very impulsive. And again, I was going through a manic state and I ended up in the hospital. This time, at least I wasn't in the locked ward. There's three units. But again, it was very traumatic. It was traumatic for my family, for my kids who were older. You know, they heard me cursing at their Bubby Shiva and and very, very um, not like they didn't recognize, you know, that this is their mom. And um, I was there for a few weeks. Um, And again, I came out a very different person each time I went through that experience. Um, And this time when neighbors reached out or family or people from the community, my husband said to me, like, people want to help us. They want to. And we we made a decision as a couple, like, are we going to hide it or are we going to, you know, share it openly? And that's when we started being open and honest. And um, I had so much support this time. I had like you know, young girls in the community, they came on Shabbos, we forbringed in the psych ward. Um, my kids came to visit me. They said, Ma, we really want to visit you. I couldn't be there for them for the first day of school. They, you know, so one at a time. Um, and it was a very, very, very different experience. They made meals for us. Um, when I came out and people said, oh, how are you doing? And I walked down the road. Years ago, I probably would have said, I'm doing great. Like, here I was. And I said, I had a really hard time. Like I just, I was in the psych ward and, you know, people were like shocked that I was being so open, but they were so supportive. Like, oh my gosh, any way I can help. Or someone would say my mother was in the psych ward or, you know, like, and I realized when I would share with people, there was, like you said, Ida, there's always somebody connected to someone who's going through something, whether it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, like, you know, it's mental health, uh, mental struggles don't uh, discriminate. So it's not like the from world or any other community or, you know, sect is, you know, like not touched by it or affected. Right, exactly. And and one of the hardest things about struggle and mental illness is the isolation and the feeling of loneliness that so many people have because they're afraid of what might happen if they share their story, if they share their experience. And we all know someone who struggles. I mean, you walk into any room and, you know, one in five people is struggling with mental illness. So in the room of a hundred people, 20 people are suffering. So we know it's out there and people are quiet because they don't want to share it. And, you know, can you share, like, I know that you also struggled with this choice of whether or not to share your story. And, you know, for those people listening who either struggle themselves or know someone who is having a hard time, what would you say to them? Like, what 
how did you go from keeping it quiet to finally choosing to open up and share your story? I would imagine it wasn't an easy decision. Can you walk us through that? Like what that was like for you um, before and after you opened up? What gave me the courage to share was really years and years of being in this 12 step group, because when I came into the 12 steps, it was the first meeting I went into was actually in the in the downstairs of a church and it was in French. Like I speak French. I mean, either you probably do too. So it was fully French meeting. But what really touched me and what made me feel like I came home was there was a grown man crying and sharing his story. And that was like, whoa, I don't know. I just felt like I can't leave this place without joining this family of support. And I never went back to that meeting, but I joined online and then eventually years later, again, when I said, Hashem, I'm still hiding from my community. Nobody in my community knows. And then a woman reached out to me. We started a 12-step women's only English-speaking group in Montreal. This was about wow. eight years ago. It's still going, thank God. And um, and that's when I started meeting women, like, you know, from women and other, not, not necessarily Jewish women, but also Jewish. And that's a big part of... Um, what I owe thanks to, you know, for giving me the courage to speak out because in those rooms, I got unconditional acceptance, no judgment, support, love. If I'm going through something, I would just be able to pick up the phone or text someone. Um, so that was one factor that really, you know, helped me be able to share. And um, I think it was also, I was so tired of hiding. I was so done with hiding. And my biggest fear, honestly, was like Shadokhim because that's a big fear to be able to, you know, not, we don't want to break the stigma or share because of that fear. And I had a you lot mean, of support you for your own children, my own children. And even for my children, like, you know, at their age now, like if their mother comes out and says, you know, she's struggling, I didn't want them to suffer for, from that, for that. So I spoke with my Rav, with my Mashpia, with my psychologist, who's also from, and I got and what, so much. And what did they say? They all said, you know, your kids will, it'll be like, a service to them, you know, the fact that you're, and, and they just, they just said, you don't need to worry about the shidduch and peace. You know, the people who marry into your family will know what they're marrying themselves into. It was, there was a lot, a lot of support. And I actually asked my mother before she passed. And this was before I was sure I wanted to share. I said, I felt something inside me. I said, I said, Ma, I want to share my story. And she was very supportive. I asked my dad before he passed also. Um, my in-laws too, I asked them, do you mind if I use the family name? Like I would have used my maiden name and they were so supportive. So I, I had a lot of backing before I was ready. Some people don't have that support. Yeah. 100%. And I'm so grateful for it. Um, and that's really what gave me the courage. And, you know, they like, they say like success breeds success, like the amount of feedback that I got and, and, and like how people were so thankful, you know, to hear my journey or you know, even like when I was worried about my kids and I had someone come up to me and say, you know, I wished my mother would have been open like you. And that really helped me because I was, I was worried about my kids. I wanted, you know, um, how old now, are your children? How old's your oldest? So my eldest is 14. A girl, youngest, a boy, a girl. Oh, you have your oldest is a daughter. <laughs> yeah, And and she actually, like when I was in the psych ward, we were trying to protect our kids. Like my, we said, mom, mommy's in it, like a wellness center. And she was on the phone with me and she said, Ma, where are you? Like, tell me the yeah, truth. She knew it was something. And I said, wrong. I'm in a psych ward. And she said to me, oh, my friend was in a psych ward. Like we had been involved in that. Um, 
but like she, you know, it just showed me that, you know, I'm trying to protect them, but they want the truth. They want right. you. Know, they want to really. Um, that's, that's such an important lesson. Yeah. Were you surprised at how not alone you were once you opened up like the people who said, oh, me too. And I know someone who also went through this. Did that surprise you? 100%. I wasn't expecting that much. Like I would even go to the States. I remember being with my husband's graduation. He graduated like with a master's in social work. And um, so few women came up to me and said, you helped me get through what I was going through. Like just, you know, and like your, you know, your platform inside out, I don't know them from anywhere, but now we know our insides. And then, you know, and even in the 12 steps, I remember like, you know, we share like real struggles that I remember once asking someone I knew for months, I'm like, I don't even know what you work as like, but we just knew our insides. Right. So yeah. So that's, you know, been this journey of being able to share and it kind of took on like, like you said, you know, I am shy and I wouldn't necessarily want to, you know, talk about myself or share my story, you know, in front of big audiences, but it's kind of like a shlichus bigger than me. And, um, it's Definitely. just, yeah, it's just this, um, you know, the same way that if somebody has a broken arm, people will go and help them and, you know, and, and can we bake, cook suppers for you? Someone who's going through mental health challenges, there's no reason why they can't say, you know, I'm struggling and I need help. Whether they know what they're going through or how to say it and just being there for them. Sometimes I'm sure you went through this where you weren't even sure you didn't even know that you needed help. You know, so you don't even, you're not even aware enough to know I need, I actually need help. You know, a lot of people feel like they just can do it on their own or they'll survive. For sure. And that was like for years, I was trying to do it on my own and, you know, not ask for help, not admit. Um, But I think that admitting and asking for help is brave. The the other way is, is not so brave. It's obviously easier, but it's, it takes a lot of courage. And, and, you know, what I hear in the 12 steps is always from friends and members is you're worth it. So right. if and it's hard either way, you know, it's hard to step up and talk about it, but I believe it's a lot harder not to. Yes. So if you're going to choose between two hard things, wouldn't you choose the one that, you know, that you'll end up on the other side, more content and, and at peace, knowing that you're not holding so much in and all the things that can happen as a result of that, even the physical yeah. Stuff, yeah, manifestations of it from your from the, your experience in the twelve steps. What are some of your? You can just share like a couple of if you open to sharing a couple of your top tools that helped you. Yeah, for sure. I think the strongest two words that I heard from the very beginning were the words "It's okay." That was like very, very different for me. Very loving. Like if I'm struggling, if I'm in a depression, if I wherever I'm at in this moment, it's okay. So, because I find that in society, like you kind of have to, it's like a fix it and you have to get better quickly. And it was just so loving like that. It's okay. It's okay to be down today. It's okay to not know how to fix myself today. Or that was very, very loving. Um, Also what's very powerful is that they don't give advice. So when I asked my sponsor for advice, she's like, Oh, we don't give advice. We share our experience, strength and hope with others. And that was also like, you know, what do you mean you don't give advice? Like, don't we do that when we care? But, and, right. the, and and that's kind of been how I've, I've been able to share my journey. It's not by telling others what to do. It's more by sharing my experience, strength and hope with others. Um, and there that, are so and, many- and in, in your story is the advice. 
Right, right. But uh, but like again, you know how how it worked for me, and if right. it, it can help someone. But I, I just from me listening, I feel like there is a lot of advice there for, you know, you asking your parents um, if it's okay if you share your story and them being okay with it and how how much that helped you. But right. also there was to have respect to ask if it's okay. I think it shows a certain sensitivity to to family members. You know, right. even though like you have the right to share whatever what you want to share, I think to be able to in, involve everybody in that decision um, is is yeah, it's great. And an important piece was that my Rev told me, you know, you can share, but you have to be very careful that no matter where you share, you it's only your story and you don't share negatively about anybody else. Right. And that was a really important, very important piece of, you know, advice that I was given, which I try very hard to, and it's it's not too difficult to, you know, describe my family in a very positive light. My husband's family and my own who have been so, so, so supportive. Um that is another, that is very important. I think that's great advice and and you're doing it right here like you share so much love I feel the love from your family listening yeah. to you yeah at the same time you're sharing what was hard and, and the, the stumbling blocks along the way yeah and I think also there there have been moments where I've been able to voice to my family what works for me and how they can be there for me but that's only after you know a lot of therapy and 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 you know self-awareness that I'm able to say to them like you know, I would appreciate if dot, 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 or when I'm, when I'm like, you know, not in such a healthy state, like, you know, please. And that was very healing for me too, to be able to come from a, you know, I take my medicine on a daily basis and I'm in a very, thank God, a very stable space and and healthy place and being able to vouch for myself too has been very. And also that you came from a background of, you mentioned your mom was more holistic and wanted to find the natural path. That's also a bit of, you know, a departure from what you were used to, but you realize that, you know, if it's important to be able to explore all options. And so even for someone who's reluctant to take medication, because there's a lot of people who feel like, oh, medication, you know, we don't know about the side effects and this and that. Sometimes it's necessary and sometimes it needs to be taken. um, And the risk is much greater in not taking it. So that's another great, you know, thing that you did is that you went out of your comfort zone there too. Well, her mom also. Yeah. And your mom. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, 100%. And I've come to a place like my 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 goal was always to wean off medicine and I did it twice, but here I am in life and I you know, I'm thinking like I don't want to live in prevent in like uh how do you say it? Like I'd rather live in a preventative mode where I prevent a manic episode or I don't end up in the hospital and have my family go through that, especially my children, everyone in my family. And so I'd rather be on medication, you know, that can keep me so, and that's been a journey too. And embracing this diagnosis of being bipolar, I didn't do that the first time, but now here, you know, here I am. And and it's what Hashem's given me. I can't change it. I can't, I wouldn't have chosen it if I was, you know, given a choice, but it is some what it the, is. Some of the most successful people in the world have bipolar. And it's so inspiring talking to you, being open about that you take med- medication, you're a teacher. You're a mother, a wife. You do so much in life today and you're on medication and you're doing it and you're amazing. I, I feel your positive energy and your Edelkeit and your, I just feel, I feel you from the inside in this episode. And it's so inspiring to hear this that and, and for you to be comfortable to share that. I here think I medication am. also is one of the stigmas we have to let go of. We're, we're trying to live healthy lives mentally and physically. And yeah. whatever we need to do to get there, um, should it shouldn't be, it shouldn't get in the way. You know, our our 
our own preconceived notions should not get in the way of wellness. We have to be able to challenge ourselves on that. Yeah. And I was worried also about the side effects, you know, like eventually if I'm taking for a long time and, and then like I spoke to someone and she said, you know, for my thyroid, I take medicine every single day so that I can, you know, live a healthy life. And yes, maybe there will be side effects, but at least, and, and just hearing from people, you know, with physical conditions who share that they take medicine and they need it, that really helped me embrace this journey of like, okay, I also need medicine to live in a healthy way. And, you know, and obviously I've discussed with my psychiatrist, you know, and, and, side effects and this and that, but, and also I also the side effects act- of not taking, of not taking medication, but the the risks of not taking versus the repercussions. The yes, what, exactly. What are you open to sharing? What are the side effects at the moment of your, of taking medication? Yeah. So for me, the only side effect that I had known of and a sponsor shared with me, uh, like uh, another sponsor that it was um, like shaking. Um, Does that, that happen was one to you? of them that I knew of. What's that? Does that happen to you? No, but it was like maybe after years of taking it. Mm-hmm. Um, but like my psychiatrist said, he sees so many elderly people who are on this medicine. So, you know, and he said to me, like the side effects are not significant at all, like right. for him to. And I also want to say that I actually switched psychiatrists. I want to say that for people who are going to psychiatrists, some of them are very pharmaceutical. Like I said, you know, just yeah. throwing, uh, you know, pills out and she wasn't even seeing me. She was just refilling my prescription. and so. I made that choice. I want to be seen. I want to have someone take the time. Right. So I switched, you know, to another doctor. And I think that that's important, you know, being our own advocates and vouching for ourselves. And well, people have a hard time finding the right doctor. I don't know if you're open to sharing, if you, if you know, I'm a good psychiatrist, just for people who are listening. So I'm, so I'm in Canada. So I don't know. Like I live in Montreal. So if somebody lives in Montreal, they can definitely reach out to me. Um, That'd be great. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 from what I've heard, you know, from other people, you know, sharing with me, there are good doctors in the States too. There's also, um, organizations that can help with referrals. There's one organization called relief mm-hmm. and it's a firm organization that helps with referrals. Yeah. There, I'm sure there's a lot of organizations in the States that I've heard of. I don't remember the names. You you take medication and sometimes people look at it. Oh, that that's the easy way out. But I see that you've taken medication, but you also have and that's not the easy way out. You've put in a lot of work, you know, you, you've gone the long, to therapy. Yeah. The long, short way. And that's why you were able to express to your family. And you even use those adjectives. So, you know, what was it that you said? I I'd appreciate if, yeah. And they were able to listen to you because they know that you've put in the work and, and you, you're talking to somebody and you're working at it. So yeah, yeah. I just feel like it's not just about taking medication. There's also a lot of work that you put into it as well. 100%. And I did preface with my family saying, I'm taking my medic. Like I reassured them I'm taking my medicine. I was also, this was when my father passed away. So it was only a year afterwards and we were in Shiva all over again. And obviously they were worried about me, you know, so I reassured them I'm taking my medicine. I'm, you know, getting the therapy I need. And I just wanted to share. And then I was able to, you know, um, be open with them and, 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 and help them help me, you know, um, but along what you're saying, I've always said that, you know, that medication is not the magic, you know, cure, and it doesn't, it's not the only thing that can help someone. And I agree with you 100%. It's, it's uh, most of the time, or a lot of the time, it's very, very important. Um, but for sure, a complementary, you, you know, um, as a complements therapy or support groups. And, and again, there's so much out there nowadays. And, and the key is that you've got to be open 
to using what's available, how would you help somebody who doesn't know how to help themselves? So it's interesting because, you know, I gave a talk recently and I ended off with what would I say helped me through all this? You know, like, what was it? And I, and I share that it wasn't me because for years I tried, but I really believe I'm like a walking miracle. And the 12 steps say, you know, it's, it's a, it's a God help program. It's not a self-help program. So, you know, the, the strongest slogan you asked me with the 12 steps is let go and let God. Um, so for someone who, you know, is, doesn't even know where to go, doesn't even know where to start, just talk to God, just ask him, because, you know, my relationship with God has been, you created this problem, you created this situation. So you have the answers. And there were times when I also didn't know where to go or how to get help. And, you know, but I knew I wanted it. I didn't want to live like this. And and that's all I knew how to do was say to God, like, you got to help me, you know, please. And I cried to him and, you know, a woman's tears, anyone's tears are so, you know, are, are accepted and listened to sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, but I, I feel like, I feel like God or in the 12 steps, a higher power is a very important piece in this journey of recovery and help. Yeah, um, I read, I read that in, in Shay Taub's, Rabbi Shay Taub's book, God of Our Understanding. It's yeah. all based on God. He also has that line, let go and let God. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, our relationship with Hashem, you know, that also takes work and like, I think that's very deep. You being able to come to that place of turning to Hashem and that you've, you've made, you've created like, this is my situation. You need to help me. I'm sure that took work for you to get to that place of really connecting to him. Well, it took you getting into a, your lowest of lows. Yes. And, and, you know, I always, I used to think that connecting to Hashem has to be like when I'm feeling very, you know, very close to him and loving. And, and for me, what broke that um, pattern of, you know, only talking to him when I was in a good place or only when I opened the sitter was I got really mad at him. Like I was very, very mad at God when he put me through this twice, you know, like the first time I, I said, okay, I went through hell on earth. The second time I was like, God, are you kidding me? Like I thought I, you know, and when I started talking to him that way, like not necessarily in like this really loving connecting place, that's when the connection started because then it was a real relationship. You know, like it wasn't just nice and dandy. So that's what I want to say. Like you said, it it is work. And I agree with you 100%. And that being okay with not being okay with God, like at least I'm recognizing that he's in my life, but I'm like, okay, if you want me to, you know, like show yourself or help me, give me a little bit of, you know, right. or whatever word someone will use, you know, he, he can handle it. There's two, um, two resources that I've heard um, a lot of people share with me about, uh, share with me that, that it really helped them through uh, many struggles. And I just want to share them. One of them is the Shara Bittachayin book that just came out. Um, and another one is called In Good Hands. It's stories that, uh, it's letters written by the Lubavitch Rebbe to people who are struggling with all kinds of, of issues. And uh, those stories have helped like many people. And I've heard personal accounts through difficult times. So those are just two things that- There's one more I want to add. It's a little book and it's called Mind Body soul. And it's a book of Rebbe's answers to people who had any issues in mental health. Oh yeah. Right. That's right. That's also a great one. It, it's a great, it's a great book with, and you know, you, you hear from the words of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, how he guided people who with mental illness. Yeah. And I can be that personal. Um, Ida, I actually, we started, I started like a learning class, like during COVID with like two girls. Now I learn also with someone else. And 
We did the whole book in good hands. Every week we learned some of it. Okay. It's all about trusting. And now we're learning that that Sharbi Tachin book, I think it's oh, wow. ga- the Gates of Trust or something. Yes, it's the Gates of Trust. Yeah. And it's the so of trust. amazing. Yeah. yeah it's, it's published by Kahas. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing. We have to include links for that as well in the podcast. Yeah. For people who feel like they're in that stage where they're angry at Hashem. Yeah. How did you get past the anger? So I had to get through it before I got yeah. past it. You know, like a lot of people, you know, like I want to go over it, under it, around it. The only way to get through is through it. Um, It's funny because I'm very visual. So, you know, having been brought up from and, you know, I I thought that if I cursed God or I got mad at him, like literally a fire would come out of heaven and consume (laughs) me. And then nothing happened. I felt like Chava, you know, with with the Eitzadas. So that's really when I realized like, oh, now we're talking. Like, you're not going to punish me if I do that. Oh, okay. So let me tell you what I, you know, and again, I really had it out with God. And it, if it, if it's a real relationship, like in any relationship, you know, it's not always happy. And, you know, like sometimes we get upset with each other or someone hurts, you know, the other person, and then you need to have it out with each other. And, you know, obviously, hopefully in ways you don't hurt each other. But my point is that it became more of a relationship when I was able to, interact with him not just by opening the sitter and praising him and loving him and thanking him here I was like he put me into the depths of despair and you know I had a lot to say (laughs) and then you said you felt like he answered you I did because the only thing I was allowed in that room was a chitas nothing else and I think what was so powerful for me was somehow like I had this awakening of like okay if anything's going to get me out of here, it's going to be God, you know, and then he did, he proved himself right. So I think, you know, like when someone can say, I'm sorry, and I'll do it for you, but you know, they call it living amends. Like you actually, you know, do the action. So he got me out of the psych ward. And then when I was back into despair, instead of just me solving the situation, like I always tried here, I was, it wasn't just me. Now I'm like, Oh, now God. And I, and I have to share that the 12 steps really helped me develop a relationship with the God of my understanding and not the God of their understanding, like my principal or my parents, it was my own relationship with God. So thanks. It is a 12 steps. And that book, God of our understanding is phenomenal. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we normally like to end with a quote or a parting message or something that resonates with you. So if you can share one with us, that'd be great. For sure. So I was struggling with anxiety first thing in the morning, like waking up and maybe a second of like calmness and then my thoughts would start racing and every right my emotions everything just on a treadmill so I was with my psychologist and I said to her I don't know what to do like I can't even so she said to me um, again as a visual learner she said to me can you imagine that on your bed you have two backpacks one is anxiety one is gratitude which one are you going to pick up first thing in the morning and I didn't feel like I could have that control or that option and then I reached out to my sponsor and she said to me Bashi, why don't you try to meditate? So I'm thinking like, okay, what is it, you know, like clear my mind, what do I do? And then I realized that when I put both together, we have the meditation as Jews first thing in the morning. And the first word that we start our morning with is moda, is gratitude. And so I started really um, applying this tefillah. And as I share it, I'm remembering like how conscious I can be in the morning because sometimes obviously I forget but again the first word is gratitude and what I've learned is that gratitude cannot exist at 
the same time as anxiety. And gratitude is the complete opposite of anxiety, right? Anxiety is being fearful of the future and gratitude is in this moment. I'm grateful in this moment. So I'll share with you what my husband shared with me, the tefillah of Moda'ani, which was actually the Rebbe's favorite prayer. So Moda'ani is grateful I am. And like grammatically speaking, if we were actually speaking Hebrew to each other, we would say Ani Moda'ah. So the reason why is because I don't start off my morning with I. It's gratitude, grateful. So modani, like the first thing is humility and like, God, I'm so grateful. And then I'm right, recognizing that God's in my life and in my day. The only reason I'm alive in this moment is because he chose to give me life. And then Bechemla means with mercy or with compassion. Because like, even if I'm not deserving of another day, maybe I did something wrong yesterday, or maybe like people are at a point where they say to God, I don't even want to live. You know, he chose to give me back my life in this moment. And then the last two words are so powerful. Rabba Emunasecha means you believe in me. That if God's giving me this day, he believes in me. He believes that I'm going to make it the best day I can. We were talking about, you know, reaching out, for recovery, for healing, for growth, being able to help others. And one last thing is that no matter how far down the scale our experiences have been, they can help others. And I've learned that in my own way. And I hope that other people are also able to share that and experience it.